Good afternoon. Firstly, I've got to say thank you for coming along today. It's always, uh, always in the back of your mind that no one's going to turn up and so celebrate with you and have a massive buffet to eat all by yourself, which would be nice, but I'd rather you were here with me as well. So this is the point of service where I'm supposed to share my story, and I would love to be able to stand here and regale you with a James Bond-esque tale of how I've got to this point, but I'm just not that interesting. You see, no, 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 really. <laughs> Honestly, you won't, be, you won't be saying that when I've finished. Um, you see, I was brought up a stone's throw from here in the village of Ramsden Heath, and I had a great childhood. Um, I, was, I came from a Christian family. Um, we used to go to church until I discovered the joys of Sunday morning football, um, and at that point, I decided football was more important. And... Um, I was put under no pressure by my parents to keep on going to church, and that's a decision that I've, I've learnt from and that I've come to respect because their faith wasn't in their own ability to force me kicking and screaming into church every Sunday. Their faith was in God's power to transform a life. So I stopped going to church, and frankly, for years and years and years, I really struggled to find any sort of relevance between this, this archaic faith and real life. The two just, just had nothing to do with one another. And I thought it was all a little bit pathetic, to be honest. There might be some people in here that share that view today. But, um, yeah, uh, maybe you should resign your membership if you're feeling like that. <laughs> but, you see, I started going out with, with Joe when I was uh, 15. And by the time we got to our early 20s, we, we couldn't imagine a future without one another. So we got engaged, and we were planning the wedding and Joe wanted to get married in a church, and I wasn't that fussed, but I said, well, fair enough, if you can find one, make sure it's a nice-looking one for the photos, whatever you do. <laughs> that worked out well. It was here. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, that, that'll, be, that'll, be, that'll be fine, if you can find a minister. So Joe wrote to local ministers, and some of the responses she got back were, were interesting. Several people, several ministers advised that she shouldn't be marrying me. And I thought, fair enough, I expect my own friends and family to tell her that, but complete strangers, and they're a bit harsh. But you see, those ministers, they lacked faith. Their faith was in in their own ability to, to keep God insular, and they didn't trust in God's power to transform a life. Interesting how you can see a theme developing when you look back on your own path, isn't it? Anyway, Joe and I talked about this. And eventually, we came and saw Cole Beach here. I said, oh, not the ugly church. Oh, where are we going to have the photos? Joey, no. But we sat down with Carl, and he said, right, I'll tell you what, come on an Alpha course. I've got one starting next week. And if you come on the Alpha course and contribute and take part and listen and, and throw all your questions at me, then by the end of it, if I'm satisfied that you've done that and you've given it a chance, my faith's in God to transform a life. And so... I'm happy to oversee your wedding. I thought, fair enough, you got yourself a deal. Brilliant. So I did the Alpha course, and to be honest, I really enjoyed it. It was a great opportunity to, to throw all those questions um, at, at other Christians and to, to find out what they had to say. And some of the answers were, were, were brilliant. Some of them weren't, because we haven't got all the answers. But it was a really good experience. And at the end of it, true to his word, Carl oversaw the marriage of me and Joe, with Nick's help, as we've already heard. Couldn't resist it, could you? Um, <laughs> And it was, in, it was in this church. As I say, the, the apple didn't far too, fall too far from the tree. We got married here. But I still wasn't convinced on the faith front. I was a lot closer than I had been before, but I still had a long way to go. 
Anyway, I thought, right, I've dodged a bullet there. Joe's got the wedding she wanted. That's brilliant. We're married, and, and, and the Alpha course has been and gone. Sorted. Lovely. And then one day, um, Joe's grandmother decided that she was going to move to Stock to be near a family. And uh, she said to Joe, can you go along to the local uh, Baptist church, or f- no, free church, I should say, sorry, um, the local free church, and, and just see what it's like. So Joe went along one morning, and she came back, and I just got out of bed. It was about midday. It was a Sunday, after all. What else are you going to do on a Sunday morning? And she said, it was brilliant. She said, it was fantastic. You've got to go along. It's so warm and welcoming. It's, it's brilliant. And she said, there's an evening service tonight. And I said, oh, I'm playing five-a-side football tonight. I can't. She said, <laughs> Oh, it was when I still had this notion that I could plan my own diary. Um, (laughs) So anyway, I I checked with the team. They had five players, so I I didn't have a leg to stand on. And that night, I was dragged, kicking and screaming down to Christchurch in stock. And I'll tell you what, I walked in the door that first evening service, and I cannot tell you how important that moment was on my life. Because I walked into this place, and I still can't quite put it into words. There was a warmth, there was a welcome, there was, there was a love, there was a peace. There was just something there that immediately I felt settled and I felt at home. It was fantastic. So much so that the next Sunday morning I was no longer kicking and screaming when I went to church with Joe. And that Sunday evening I was happy not to play football and to go to church as well. For the next six maybe 12 months, I worshipped at Christchurch. Although I wouldn't have called it worship at the time. I went to Christchurch. And I just become, I, I came to know those people, to love those people, to feel so welcomed by those people. I came to believe in the people of Christchurch stock before I believed in their God. And I think that is a fantastic thing for anybody to say about a church, because a church should be somewhere where, where, where that is welcoming, that is, that is a place of warmth, a place where people can feel at home. And I felt that, and I'm so proud to say that Christchurch Stock are my sending church. They supported me throughout my, my fledgling faith, and eventually I got baptised there, because I came to know God through them. I just came to see that there was a relevance to the Christian faith in life today. I came to see that that actually Scripture stands up to integrity. So much of what I thought I knew about Scripture was actually incorrect. It was poor teaching. I've got the wrong end of the stick. Things have been misquoted. And I came to understand that actually there is a great relevance for Scripture. I began in today's world. Eventually, I, I had an opportunity to preach, and I began preaching. Then I went to Spurgeon's College and did an equipped to minister course, a part-time course that, that is still running now and is doing really well. And um, eventually, having been an elder and been involved in youth group and men's work and all sorts of different ministries, it got to the point where I was fully involved in church. And I loved it. And I wanted to do more and more and more. But for 10 years, every time somebody said to me, do you think you'll ever go into ministry full-time? I'd say, you're joking. I can't think of anything worse. In about three months' time between that response, for for a three-month period, that response changed completely. I went from not being able to see anything resembling a future in ministry. I was happy working up in the city for a lawyer's insurance broker. It was, a, it was a great career. I was happy with that. I saw my future there. But then, in a very short space of time, I got to the point where the only future I could see for me was a future in ministry. 
something changed. And this feeling was nagging away, and I was, I was praying it through, which you know, seemed like a good idea, and I just really felt that, that God was saying to me, look, stop moaning. You've got a choice. You can either just keep doing what you're doing at Christchurch, and that's brilliant. I'll bless that. I'm happy with that. You give, you give loads of time to it, and, and, and it's a great ministry. But if you're going to keep on moaning to me, it's up to you to do something about it. You've got to take the plunge. If you really want to do more for me, I'm not, I can't give you more hours in the day. Everybody gets 24 hours in a day, so it's up to you. If you want to take the plunge and go into ministry, do it now. So I ignored this for a little while, as you would. And then eventually I couldn't ignore it any longer. And I spoke to Jo, and she said, yeah, I've been feeling the same thing. I think, it, I think it's time to push this further. And so then I started having conversations with other friends and family. We started, we started praying for, for people to speak into the dilemma and... There were so many in a short space of time. There were so many, um, what at the time I thought could have been coincidences, were it not for the sheer volume, where people that I wouldn't have expected would ask me when I was going to go into ministry, if I was in ministry yet. Questions like that. And I just thought, I've got to respond to this. And so I went through the process. I went through the process of interviews with church leadership, the church meeting, speaking to, to Nick Lear, our regional minister, and then um, I had a, a ministerial recognition day, went through, you have to jump through loads and loads of different hoops because it's an important process, discerning, discerning a call to ministry. It's a life decision and it's not one that anybody should take lightly. But eventually, I got to the point where I thought, this is right. This is right for me. This is the path that I need to take with my life. And it wasn't one that I took with fear and trepidation. It was one that I was so excited about. And so three years ago, I gave him my notice in the city. And um, uh, in September, I started at Spurgeon's College. And with the financial support of Christchurch Stock, for which I cannot express my gratitude... I've done three years at Spurgeon's College. We've done, um, I say we, because I've, I've been part of a fantastic cohort of students, and I'm really pleased. Elizabeth is, um, is here. She's one of my fellow students, but there were, there's a massive group of us, and um, we all had our last time in college after three years, hard work and study and church ministry and family life and everything else that goes with it. We finished it this week, and it's a good feeling, isn't it? Yeah. We've got graduation in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm hoping if I say some nice things about Philip, that will be a day to celebrate. <laughs> so that's how I'm here. Throughout, those, throughout that time, um, I should have said, I moved from Christchurch Stock to Biriki Baptist Church. For a lot of ministers, they, they up sticks, they, they leave town, they go and they, they uproot their family. Everything changes, everything. And when I called to Biriki Baptist Church, I thought, oh, it's, it, it's too local. It's too local. And Joe felt the same. We sort of said, well, we should be, it, life shouldn't be easy. Life should be really, really hard. You know, ministers moan all the time about how hard life is. And then someone said to me, why? Why do you think God wants life to be so easy for you? So difficult for you, sorry. Why do you think that, that God wants you to be uprooting everything, to be leaving everything. Don't you think he's put into place your friends, your family, the school for your son, the job for your wife, the house to live in? Don't you think he's given you a base from which you can launch a fantastic ministry? Don't you think you can use that? And I thought, wow. Yeah, I do. 
And so for three years now, I've been ministering training at Bitterrookie Baptist Church. I've received brilliant support. I've loved every minute of it. I've learned a huge amount. Church life always has its challenges, inevitably, but then every aspect of life has its challenges. It's how we respond to those challenges that matters. And I am over the moon now that today I stand here, not just to be ordained, as fantastic as that is, but also to be inducted as the associate minister of this church. It's been a great blessing to us as a family, and I've got so many people that I need to thank that have helped me along the way. There are too many people for me to stand here and list them all, but suffice to say, I've got to thank my wife, because she's... She's sacrificed so much in order for me to make the life change that I've made. And I cannot stand here and not mention Jo. She's a brilliant, a brilliant person. She's the best friend anybody could have. She's a fantastic support. And she is very quick. As soon as I begin to get above myself, she is superb at bringing me straight back down to earth. And I think we all need someone like that. So... That is a very, very, very brief account, believe it or not, of my story. Just before I finish, I just want to say, when I started at Spurgeon's College, which is is the the biggest, best Baptist college in the UK, just before I started there, I was really excited about it, because I'd heard loads of it. You know, Ian went there many, many years ago, and um, and he... (laughs) He'd always told these tales of how great Spurgeon's was. And I I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait. And I got there, and the quality of teaching was superb. Every lecture was challenging and thought-provoking, and it was was just fascinating. But to be honest, I looked around, and I was a bit underwhelmed. The building was falling apart. It was held together by gaffer tape and string. There was one lecture, one memorable lecture, where uh, literally there was a bucket in the middle of the lecture hall with a drip coming through when we'd have some particularly heavy rain. And in my first year... There wasn't a principal. There was an acting principal, but one had left, and they were looking to appoint somebody else. And I thought, this place is falling apart. I could be one of the last people to graduate from Spurgeon's. It's not looking good. And then there were these rumours that started to circulate that there was, there was a military man that had been appointed. <laughs> there were rumours that there was a sniper's nest going to be installed on the principal's balcony to pick off people that were late to chapel every day. But when I got back from my second year, I walked in and I almost didn't recognise the place. Everything was changing. The buildings were being repaired. The gardens were being sorted out and cleared and smartened up. The whole atmosphere was different. And that's because they had appointed Philip McCormack, the man sitting behind me, as the principal. Philip has changed Spurgeon's College beyond recognition in a very short space of time. He's got massive plans to... Be, for Spurgeon's to be its own awarding body rather than affiliated to another university, which means they can offer um, a lot more courses, a lot further afield. There's, there's building projects planned that are going to increase the capacity so more and more students, more and more men and women can go to the college and, and learn and study and be equipped to go out into ministry. Things are happening at Spurgeon's College. It's a brilliant place to go. One of my students said to me earlier in the week, it's a shame that we're leaving now because things are just taking off. It's an exciting time at Spurgeon's College and that has a knock-on effect because that means that, that nationally and internationally it's an exciting time for the Baptist movement. That is a fantastic thing, and it's all because it's all because God has put the right person in the right place for the right time. 
I pray that he's done the same with me in this church and that journey begins today as well. Thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate everything you've done. The reading this afternoon from which I'm expecting Philip to be preaching is Luke chapter 5 and the first 11 verses. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding round him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. We thank God for his word. I would like to say again what a a tremendous privilege it is to be here today and to share with you in this day of celebration. I was reflecting on the way here today from London that it was this month, 26 years ago, that I was uh, inducted into the pastorate of my first charge. And I remember very, very fondly and vividly that special day in my own life and in the life of my family and of the church. And I pray that today may be so for Tom, for Juan and his family, and for you as a church fellowship. It's a tremendous privilege for me to be here today because I get in my role as the principal of Spurgeons to visit quite a number of our Baptist churches not just in in EBA and SEBA and the LBA, but across the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. And it's a joy to be able to say that I do see signs of amazing growth and real optimism. Because I still believe with every ounce of my being 
that as far as God is concerned, the best is yet to come. Even though the journey may be somewhat odd. Tom mentioned some of the stories that went around about me coming to college. He wasn't making some of that up. He he wasn't. I had been an army chaplain for just over 20 years. And so some of the staff were actually terrified that I would be conducting military PT on the lawn at the front of the college. (laughs) Ah, dear. You can see that I don't do a lot of military PT just at the moment. (laughs) I have that figure that reflects somebody who used to be in the army and has now left. One of the things I really enjoy about God's word is that it presents events in a very honest way. Not in the way that perhaps you and I would want to present them had we been working on compiling the stories Now, we read at the start of Luke that he inquired into the life of Jesus very diligently. And so what we have here is a collection of stories that Luke gathered together so that he could write them down to instruct people. And I wonder, I wonder, if we had been working with Luke, guided by the Spirit of God, to compile this gospel if we would have included all of the details that Luke includes. And it's one of the marks, I think, of authenticity about the Scripture, that it doesn't try to pretend that people are other than they are. One of the difficulties that we face when we come to God's Word, and my students will have heard this many times when they've heard me speak in church, is that we know these stories so well. In fact, we can almost go into autopilot when it comes to certain stories in Scripture because we've heard them. Do you know the first one of the... I was in my first pastorate about six months and one of the deacons said to me, you're doing really well, pastor. And I was encouraged. And then he said something that sort of brought me back down to earth. But you know, we've heard it all before. (laughs) How many times have you heard a sermon on this particular passage of Scripture. When we read Scripture and we try to imagine Scripture and we try to uh, put ourselves perhaps in the text or in the context of a scriptural story, how many times can we convince ourselves that if we had been there, we would have recognized who Jesus was? But to put this in the context... This was going to transform not just Peter's life, but also James and John. And yet I wonder if at the start of the day they had any notion that their life was going to be transformed. And yet it was. Peter had no idea that he would become one of the leaders of a group that would be despised, but that would change the world. Today, You know, there are over 2 billion people on this planet say they're Christian. One third of the population on the planet confess Christ. That's a long way from this event in Luke's gospel. I wonder what it really would have been like to have been there that day when the fishermen 
working all night, achieving nothing. Now, no one likes to do that. No one likes to do that. Have you ever had the experience? I try to avoid it as much as I can, but it still happens. We have been working on something on Word, and then the computer, for some reason, crashes, and you haven't saved it. And you frantically search, and it's gone. I heard a, read a story recently, or heard a story recently about a student at university, and someone broke out into the house, took his um, laptop, took his hard drive, took everything, and his dissertation was on it, and there were no other copies. The person who told me the story said that he would just love the dissertation back. They could keep the computer. Imagine what it would have been like to have worked all night and achieved nothing except mending nets for the next time. And then, without expecting it, you see a crowd starts to approach the shore. And they seem to be focused on an individual. And then this individual says to, he steps into a boat and he says, look, would you take me out a little bit from the shore? I wonder what it felt like for Peter at that particular moment to sit and listen to this individual teach Scripture. I wonder what he imagined would happen. Can I suggest probably not what did happen? And one of the things I really like about Scripture And what I like about the way that God works is that often he calls people, he shapes people without their perhaps recognition that a work of God is taking place in a heart. Because this man's life was going to be transformed. He would be challenged and transformed. And he would get an insight in what it would be like to be with this person called Jesus. I have often wondered what it would have been like to listen to Jesus teach Scripture. I have been privileged in my Christian life to sit under some wonderful Bible teachers. I remember going one night to a gospel hall in Newton Arts. I have a brethren background. And this, this believer, I, I never met him again. I couldn't tell you his name. He opened a passage in the Song of Songs. And although I was a Christian, I was a born-again believer, my heart welled such within me that I felt as if I had been born up on eagle's wings. Such was the power of the Word of God. And it thrilled my soul. What would it have been like to sat, to sat beside the Master? as he unpacked God's word. And then, without expecting it, challenged to do something. Now, the Greek word that's used here means to launch out into the deep. And I think that's really apt. Because often, whenever God is at work in someone's life, or in the life of a fellowship, or in the life of an institution like my college, 
There are times whenever God challenges us to launch out into the deep. And there are many in this building who know exactly what that means. To be vulnerable. To do something deliberately and in knowledge. Like Tom, I remember handing in my resignation, seeking voluntary redundancy in the shipyard where I worked as an engineer. And most of my colleagues thinking I was mad. Many of my family thinking I had taken leave of my senses. Many of you have never met me before. I have some very grand titles and letters that are associated with my name. But I can very easily skip back in my mind to the shipyard man who put the letter asking for voluntary redundancy into the management. There was nothing, no indication back then of what would unfold or what God would do. And yet, the context is really striking here. Because sometimes God challenges us, even after things have not gone the way in which we think they should have gone. The context of this is after a night of laboring as a professional, and you catch absolutely nothing. Not even a cold by the seams of things. And yet Jesus says to Peter, launch out into the deep and let down the nets. And Peter responds, but master, (laughs) come on, we've, we've been working hard all night on this. There's no fish there. There's nothing there. And I can appreciate Peter. I identify with Peter in many ways. I, I, I take great encouragement from the fact that Peter often got it wrong. Because it reminds me that God is not looking for perfect individuals, as we'll see in a little later. He just wants people who will respond, who will hear his voice and respond. When I worked in the shipyard, um, centrally at Turner by Trade, some of the older folk may recognize what that is. I was a precision engineer and I was well-trained and skilled and all that kind of stuff. If somebody had to come in right from the boat, say a, a, a welder, and was standing in my machine and he went, you don't want to do it like that, you want to do it like this. I would have said to him, how long have you been a turner? Do you have a trade in this? But that's effectively what Peter says. We have labored all night, yet because you say so, I will do it. And I've tried to imagine what it was like to cast the net over the boat and to watch it sink in the water with perhaps not even an inkling that anything positive would come from this. But Peter was to learn a really valuable lesson is that when Christ commands, there is blessing. And the blessing can sometimes be overwhelming. What would it have been like to have had your hands on the net and to start to feel the weight? To such an extent, these professionals start to become afraid. 
And they go, help, help. And then their partners come out. And it gets bigger and bigger to the point whereby both boats seem as though they're in trouble. But what I like about this is the very practical impact of this. Is that in order to reap blessing, launch was required. Peter had been told to launch into the deep. But God, as he does consistently, and it's a pattern that God employs, others are drawn in to the mission of God, to the command of God, to the task of God. And one of the joys of a day like this is to rejoice in the way in which God called this young couple into ministry. Two churches, an association, and a college are all brought in to the command of God and the call of God. Because in the work of God, teamwork is absolutely essential. Now, I cannot prove this. And if I were to write this in an essay for one of my lecturers to mark, I'm sure that there would be one of those little bubble marks. Elizabeth and Tom will know what those are in the the script going, where is your evidence to support this? But I don't believe that Jesus sat in the boat and went, my work is done. (laughs) I think the carpenter of Nazareth who was also the Son of God, was one of those bringing in the net. Because not only does God call people to do amazing things, to launch out in faith. Remember what Peter said, because you said, I will. Not only does God bring others into his plan, and God is an amazing architect, One of the things that I have been blown away by in the last 18 months as we've developed these plans and Spurgeons is the amazing way in which God brings together an impossible jigsaw that makes no sense until you see the master craftsman starting to put each piece into place. Not only does God bring together those he needs to do the work, but he is involved in the work. Working with those who were utterly dumbfounded by what they were seeing. How would we respond to that? What would be our response to seeing that? Again, I completely recognize myself and Peter. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. Do you know all we can ever be? And it's something that when we learn, it liberates and sets free. It was very kind for Tom to say the things that he said about me and the college. But all I will ever be is a lump of clay. Paul uses this analogy. 
Peter didn't see himself as a future leader of the church. He couldn't possibly imagine the impact that he would have, not only in his own generation, but down through the centuries and millennial of church history. How many people have been blessed through the stories of this man's life and the epistles that he contributed to God's word? And yet it all begins with Peter's recognition that he was utterly unworthy and sinful. But you see, in the hands of the master craftsman, even the humble lump of clay can become something. And all I will ever be, all Tom will ever be, or Ian or Simon or Nick, is a piece of clay in the master's hand because the work belongs to God. Now, I don't know how this message will impact each heart in this building. But I'm utterly convinced that this miracle, because that's what I think it is, is an allegory of the work that God does. That when it is God's work, there is abundant blessing. But it requires us to respond. A bit like Peter. Is God speaking to someone here? Seriously. Peter had no idea that his life was going to be transformed. Could it be that someone has come here today just to take part and to celebrate, maybe make some sandwiches, quiche, coordinate the car parking, whatever it happens to be, put the chairs out. And yet there is that voice of God saying, would you launch into the deep for me? What about the fellowships that are represented here? Is there some challenging work or test of faith? Because I won't won't dress this up. It is terrifying to step out in faith. The deep is a scary place. But God calls people to trust him and take that step of faith because that's where blessing is. And because Peter obeyed, others were brought in, the blessing could be shared and the power of God was manifest and displayed. And that happens consistently, time and time and time again. So the challenge, is anyone hearing that? And for you, Tom, always remember as you go on in your ministry that all that is required is faithfulness and obedience. All the rest is in God's hand. And I trust and pray that this day, this act of ordination, this act of induction, a time with your family and friends and 
church members will be a source of strength to you as you go into what will be at times difficult days in ministry. Remember, he called you to launch into the deep. And it seems to me that you're a part of a team. And collectively, I pray that you will reap a blessing to the glory of God. Amen.